this week on The Futurists, Aubrey de Grey. It had just never occurred to me that anyone could possibly not think that ageing is the world's most serious problem, the thing that causes the most suffering and so on, and furthermore, that it is potentially a problem we can solve. Welcome to this week's The Futurists. I am uh, back home in the hosting chair in Bangkok. Uh, the last couple of episodes we've done while I've been on the road. Rob, you're home too, but in LA. That's right. Good to see you again. How was your trip? I was. It was very fruitful. Hey, very you constructive. Were everywhere. Tiring. You were oh, all yeah. over the place, man. You're a world traveler. Well, it's good to see you in your base. Uh, I love your sign. Good sign you've got in the background there. Yeah. For the this people who are listening. The futurists. Yeah. Brett's yes. got a new futurist sign the in the new background. Neon sign for the show. Um, for those of you who watch on YouTube, of course, you'll be able to see it. But uh, uh, this is uh, we're upgrading the studio a little bit. Nice. Um, we've got a really amazing guest coming up for you in a few minutes. We're going to uh, kick off with Aubrey de Grey, the world's preeminent expert on longevity. But before we get to that, Rob, um, some some uh, news this week. What what news from the future have you got for us? Here we go, Brett. News from the future. So this week, I thought I'd focus on some topics that are related to today's show. I'm going to talk about some uh, topics in healthcare and uh, medical science. So one of the topics we've talked about on this show in the past, and it keeps coming up, is what's the next device that's going to replace your smartphone? You know, in the in the history of Silicon Valley, we've gone from mainframe computers to microcomputers to PCs, desktops, laptops, and now the ubiquitous smartphone that seems to be in everybody's pocket. And the big speculation is what will come next. Some people say it's a head-mounted display for virtual reality. Other people say that it's some sort of uh, goggles or glasses you might wear. But now there's a new entrant in the field. And they're not making a headset. What they're offering is augmented reality contact lenses. That's right, a lens that you stick in your eye uh, that can actually render render augmented reality. Uh, the company's been doing this, been working on it for a couple of years, but the news here is that they just tested the first version of this in a real human eye. It's not a prototype, it's not a demo, it's actually a real test of working device. Uh, we didn't get much uh, data on exactly what the test consisted of or what the results were like. Um, but we do have some information about the device. I thought I'd share it with you, Brett, because it's kind of amazing. Um, this augmented contact reality lens from Mojo Vision has 14,000 pixel per inch micro LED display, which is about 30 times the pixel density of the current generation iPhone. It wow. has to be that, uh, that much resolution because it's right on your eye, right? So it's very close to your eye. So it has to be super high resolution. Um, and the lenses also include an ARM processor with a five gigahertz radio transmitter because it's connecting wirelessly to the internet. Uh, it has an accelerometer, a gyroscope, and a, magno a magnometer to track eye motion. That's how they can align all the augmented reality uh, and make it register appropriately in the right places. But that's a lot of gear to stick in a contact lens. And bear in mind, you know, the last 30 years, those those parts have been miniaturized, but I did not realize that they're miniaturizing that quickly. What about the so, battery? Well, that's a great question. And we don't know. Uh, so, you know, the, the, they didn't release any stats on how long the device runs. But of course, what the company said is that they're aiming for all day use in the future. And bear in mind, this is just the very first, you know, iteration. There's a long road to go before this is a commercial product. Still kind of an exciting idea. So that means, you know, while you're riding your mountain bike, you could be watching, you know, YouTube videos or TikTok videos. Always a good thing. Not very safe to do while you're riding a mountain bike. No, but... Of course not. Our second news item is uh, is about a new kind of vaccine. Uh, and you'll recall the company Moderna created one of the most popular vaccines during the COVID pandemic. Um, they generated about $3 billion selling that vaccine last year. So it was a very good product for them. But of course, now they need something new because people are moving on uh, from, from the pandemic. And uh, actually, what that company was originally organized to do uh, was to focus on vaccines for cancer. And so this week, there was an announcement from Moderna that they've now uh, developed a uh, vaccine for skin cancer. It's an experimental product. Uh, they are now in stage two clinical trials, and they're about to move into stage three clinical trials, which is the most expensive and most rigorous phase of clinical trials in the US FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, the way it works is it's in a partnership with Merck, the big pharmaceutical company. Merck makes an immunotherapy drug called Keytruda. And if you use this uh, vaccine with Keytruda, it's actually 44% more effective in terms of uh, reducing the risk of um, recurrence or death. 
that's a pretty significant gain. And of course, because Merck produces that drug, Keytruda, it was quite easy for them to do uh, a test because they could, you know, they had a class of people who are already taking that drug without the vaccine. Uh, so this is a very, very positive step forward for the pharmaceutical industry. And the two companies plan to continue working together uh, where they share costs and profits. It's interesting to note that Moderna's share price skyrocketed. It went up by 23% on this news. Last news item I have for us today is uh, related to COVID. Actually, it's not particularly new. This news came out in August, but I thought because Aubrey is joining us, this would be a useful starting point for the show, uh, which is actually kind of a surprising and downbeat piece of news that came from the U.S. Center for Disease Control and Prevention. They released a statement in August stating that life expectancy in the United States has declined from 2020 to 2021, and it's gone down by about a year. And that comes on top of a, a previous uh, drop in life expectancy in the previous year, in 2020. Um, so this is the biggest two-year decline first time in, in... since the 1920s. So 1921 is the last time in history when we had a two, year uh, two years of declining uh, um, life expectancy in a row. Uh, and it falls unevenly on the population, as you might imagine. Um, men are more likely to die sooner than women. Um, and uh, different ethnicities are more likely uh, to have this impact. So, for instance, uh, Native American people had the biggest drop in life expectancy, followed by Caucasian or white people, followed by black people. Uh, people who are Hispanic and Asian experienced only a slight drop in, uh, in longevity. Now, the main driver of this, of course, is the COVID-19 pandemic. That accounts for almost 75% of this. Um, and uh, another big driver of it is uh, accidents and injuries, including drug overdose, which was a surprisingly high percentage. I don't know if there's a correlation there, if people have been you know, doing drugs or having more overdoses during the COVID pandemic that wasn't explained in this report. Uh, but there are a couple of other factors driving this drop in, in life expectancy. And I thought this would be a quite a good way to start the conversation with Aubrey today. Well, let's, um, one of the, let's one of the drivers, 4% uh, of the increase was driven by heart disease and 3% was driven by chronic liver disease and cirrhosis. So there's the news, a new contact lens uh, that helps you see augmented reality and um, some news about, uh, yeah, sorry, and a vaccine for uh, skin cancer, which is kind of an amazing idea. Um, and then finally, news about life expectancy, but not very not very sunny news. Yeah, um, you know, did you ever watch that Canadian um, sci-fi show called Continuum? Because it actually demonstrated what a smart contact lens could could look like. Oh, cool. um, it's very interesting. But anyway, so uh, introducing our guest, Aubrey de Grey. He's, uh, of course, if you're in the futurist community, I'm sure you know of Aubrey. He's a uh, biomedical gerontologist. Uh, he um, has co-founded multiple nonprofit associations, including the Methuselah Foundation, Sands Research, and his latest, uh, the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation, or LEV Foundation. Um, he received both his uh, computer science and PhD in biology from the University of Cambridge, the latter after he wrote the book of the Mitochondrial Free Radical Theory of Aging in 99 and in 2007, Ending Aging. He's done a, a, a large number of academic papers. Um, Aubrey de Grey, welcome to The Futurists. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's good to so, see you again. Absolutely. Um, so let me let me ask you, you this. When did you decide you wanted to cure death? Well, first of all, let's be very careful with the terminology. People often use the word death to mean aging, and of course it doesn't. And to be, to be quite honest, it's a problem that so many journalists are so fond of using those words interchangeably, because the issue is that everyone knows that death is not something that can be solved uh, technologically, medically, or anything like that. Um, and therefore, to yeah, to interchange those two words kind of subliminally makes people think that doing anything about aging is also science fiction. All right. Well, so I, I, I stand that. chastised. <laughs> anyway, so where did I figure out that I wanted to work on aging? Actually, it happened only at the age of around 30, 31, something like that. Um, because until that time, I had been laboring under the misconception that everybody wanted to bring aging under complete medical control. Um, and that, you know, the only reason we weren't hearing much about it was because it was a really hard problem. I had just never 
It had just never occurred to me that anyone could possibly not think that ageing is the world's most serious problem, the thing that causes the most suffering and so on, and furthermore, that it is potentially a problem we can solve. Um, so I only discovered this uh, kind of by accident after marrying a biologist and uh, learning a lot of biology by accident over the dinner table. Before then, I'd been working on another really difficult and really important problem that humanity has, namely the problem of work, the fact that we have to spend so much of our time doing stuff that we wouldn't do unless we were being paid for it. So I wanted to work in artificial intelligence research and improve Yeah, you started in AI. I I thought that's interesting, right? Yeah, so, um, you know, that's, uh, I was, and that, that work that I was doing in my 20s was going perfectly well. Um, so I wasn't in any way disillusioned with that. But when I discovered that um, so few people were working on aging and they were not really going about it in the way that I thought they should, um, I thought, well, I better switch fields, really. And I happened to be in a position where I could do that. And so here I am. Is AI, though, a big part of the way we're attacking the problem of, um, you know, cell senescence and, and those types of issues today, though? So, um, well, when I got into it, uh, I think my background in computer science as a kind of engineering discipline was definitely extremely important in contributing to having a different way of looking at the problem of aging than what people who had been in the field all their lives were doing. So in that sense, um, computer science and, and, and that area has played a big part in my contributions. But these days, and certainly really for the past you know, 10 or 15 years, my own work has been focused not so much on the use of computers, but on the, uh, let's call it the boring wet stuff that, um, you know, it's so hard to do. Uh, and so the, um, um, the, the, the real question, the real answer to your question about the role of AI these days in the longevity crusade is um, more about what other people are doing. And um, other people are indeed doing a good deal in this area uh, using AI. Uh, there are important companies in silico medicine is the biggest one um, working in this space to, using state-of-the-art machine learning techniques to identify new drugs to address various aspects of aging. Binomi's the only one. There's another company I'm very close to called BioAge, which is doing the same kind of thing, though it also does um, wet lab work and other smaller companies. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely a very big thing. And, of course, I should also mention that AI is being used in ways that have relevance across the whole of medical research, not just to aging. The most conspicuous example that everyone knows about is DeepMind's work on protein folding, leading to this amazing thing, AlphaFold, that really uh, more or less solved the problem of protein folding a couple of years ago, though there is still some way to go to really, you know, to, to, to solve the, um, the more difficult aspects of that. Can you tell us a bit about what you're doing at the Longevity Escape uh, Velocity Foundation? Absolutely. Uh, so the uh, LEV Foundation is my new organization, uh, which I am the President and Chief Science Officer. And we are essentially um, focused on doing the kind of things that I'm good at, basically being the, being the tip of the spear, being the person who like, you know, takes all the bullets and does the things that are still controversial and uh, opens doors for other people to walk through. Mm -hmm. um, so that's very much what I did at Sense Research Foundation in relation to the whole idea of rejuvenation, the whole idea that we could um, bring aging under control and postpone the health problems of late life by damage repair, as opposed to the more mainstream traditional uh, thinking, which was all about um, essentially making the body run more cleanly and damage itself more slowly than it naturally does, mm. um, which turns out to be a lot harder. Um, so yeah, so that was a very um, heterodox concept when I first started talking about it, and now it isn't. And I, I'm delighted to say that there are many, many people talking about the whole idea of damage repair and rejuvenation and going on and doing it, um, you know, in a manner that uh, I very much find satisfactory. So now the question is, you know, what's left? And um, there are various things that are left, uh, but I'm looking at the ones that are least likely to be done by other people. And so the main one there is the combining of different damage repair 
modalities, damage repair techniques, uh, in the same animal at the same time. This is something that is not really aligned with the incentive structures either within industry or within academia. It just kind of doesn't get you the high-profile papers. It also doesn't get you, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to make money out of it. So um, it kind of falls to the philanthropic sector, which is what, of course, LEV Foundation is part of. And so we have a flagship project that is just starting up now. The foundation itself is only a few months old. Um, and this project is a large mouse lifespan study in which we will be testing, of course, not only lifespan, but also uh, many aspects of function of what, what people often call health span these days. Um, uh, but the goal here is to take four different interventions of different types, a stem cell intervention, a gene therapy, a drug that kills senescent cells, and a drug that is um, quite good at... Uh, being, uh, at tricking the body into thinking it's in a famine. Um, and we're putting all of these things together in various different combinations. So it's a big experiment. I bought a thousand mice three weeks ago. Um, and it's being done at a company named Icor, which, I-C-H-O-R, which is the most successful of the half dozen spin-out companies that Sense Research Foundation created over the past several years. Um, Icor has become the go-to place for this kind of work in there. You know, they do many things, but this is, of course, the division of Icor that's a contract research organization. And they're lovely people to work with. They're absolutely committed to the longevity movement and and, um, you know, this, this experiment is going to be done really well and really right. Okay. The, the last thing I want to say about that is that um, this is just the first step. This is phase one of what we envisage will be a rolling research program. Uh, you know, every several months we will have another thousand mice and we'll test different combinations of interventions. But the goal here is to take interventions that are begun only when the organism is in uh, middle age. So we start late mm -hmm. um, and we try to extend the lifespan to postpone the health problems of late life by at least a year, which is perhaps, which is several times more than can be done at the moment using late onset interventions. Okay. Yeah. You covered an awful lot there. That's a, that's a broad but sweeping overview of what your new foundation is doing. I just want to go back and make sure that the audience that's listening caught all of the things that you shared with us. One of the points you made is that it's necessary to create a foundation because there is not an alignment mm. of incentive. Uh, and I'm curious to understand yeah, that. Big because farmers not necessarily incentivized to, to fix these problems in the same way, right? Yeah, that's right. So yeah. talk about the misalignment of incentive in today's modern healthcare uh, economy. Sure. So in the private sector, it's by no means only Big Pharma that has the wrong incentives for this. Uh, and I'm not saying they have the wrong incentives for everything in this right. field by any means. Uh, you know, these people are putting very good money into some things that are extremely valuable within the longevity movement and mission. Um, but they tend to be the low-hanging fruit because, let's face it, you know, Big Pharma and everybody else in the private sector, investors in startup companies and so on, they're all interested in making money. And everyone who wants to make money wants to make it tomorrow. So there's an enormous um, you know, bias towards the low-hanging fruit. And in academia, we've got exactly the same kind of bias towards short-termism, though for a completely different reason, namely that the only way you get your next grant application funded is by getting lots of high-profile publications in top journals. And that means you have to do easy stuff that can you can make work quickly. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, so they can't labor away at a difficult problem for 10 years. There's, there's no research funding for that. And that's where and that's the foundation exactly fits I, in. So that's that's the role of the foundation is to is to foster a long term approach. That's been the role of all my foundations. In fact, it's been very important to me to make sure that the stuff that is most difficult catches up and does not get left behind mm -hmm. because the damage repair approach is inherently a divide and conquer one where you have to get everything working reasonably well. You know, I think that this is part of the philosophical shift. You've talked about UBI and the impact it will make on society. And I think 
this part of the shift that humanity needs to make. We need to get back into this cycle of trying to tackle the really big problems and not, you know, because, um, you know, capitalism in its current form, it, it gets this very short term focused in terms of results um, or, or return on investment and so forth. Um, but these pro- some of these problems just take longer to fix. And, and but, but clearly you're able to attract funding from people who do have a long term interest. And those must be wealthy individuals who made their money in the, in the exact way that Brett was just referring to. So tell me about the kinds of organizations or people who are funding this kind of research, funding your foundation, for instance. Well, so first of all, let me emphasize that it's not just wealthy people, grassroots funding, people who give us, you know, $10, $100, $1,000 a month oh. or whatever. You know, these people are just as important as the people who um, will give us large donations. But among the wealthy people who've got interested in this field, there is a spectrum of priorities and latitudes. So, for example, it's well known that Larry Page and Sergey Brin put a lot of money into a company called Calico, and more recently, Jeff Bezos put a lot of money into a company called Altos. You know, they've both known me for 20 years or 15 years at least. And um, they could easily have put money philanthropically into this work a long time ago. And they chose not to because they just basically don't believe in the role of philanthropy in pioneering technology. Mm. Whereas certain other wealthy people, like Peter Thiel, for example, or Vitalik Buterin, uh, you know, have taken the opposite view that actually it is sensible to invest philanthropically in these things before they become investable so as to hasten the eventual outcome. In a way, now, it's um, playing the role that, that uh, funding for basic research played, you know, at, say 20 or 30 years ago, the U.S. federal government funded tremendous amounts of basic research. But as that funding has dried up with the end of the Cold War, uh, there's just there's less urgency there for that. And, uh, and private sector in, uh, that hasn't really replaced it because private sector needs results tomorrow, as you said. So there's been a gap, I think, across the board in scientific funding. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's that basic research has dried up in terms of funding from the government. There's still plenty of that. But in the case of longevity, anyway, it's too basic. In other words, it's what we often call curiosity-driven, where people are basically trying to understand aging for the sake of understanding it, and they're not really equipped or or, or really inclined to highlight the need to do something about aging. They're not so translational. Um, So I think it's easier to get translational work, especially this early-stage translation, translational work funded philanthropically than from the government. Now, we have had some some breakthroughs recently. You know, we, we um, like the work that's been done on telomeres. Now, obviously, it still um, requires some some work. Um, the NMDs, NADs, uh, you know, even um, the results that we're seeing from metformin use and things like that. Where, where have they come from? Have they come out of private funding or... A lot of the work that we're seeing that's getting a lot of attention these days has come from a combination of basic research and, you know, serendipitous discoveries, plus the um, incentive structures from the private sector. So if we take, for example, drugs like rapamycin and um, such like who, that, that were, were um, seen to be um, good what are called CR mimetics, calorie restriction mimetics, that trick the body into thinking it's in a famine when it isn't. Um, these drugs, uh, essentially the um, the mania over them, so to speak, uh, began about 10 years ago through an accidental discovery that was funded by the government. Uh, but in, it, it immediately became apparent that there were ways forward that could be pursued in relatively rapid, in relatively short order in the private sector. So a, a slew of companies came into existence very quickly and it's all moving quite fast. So, you know, you know there's no one uh, trajectory that any particular area follows. Now, you had mentioned in, in your previous comments that one of the hard problems you're focused on is the combination of modalities. So not testing one single approach, but rather, uh, you know, multiple approaches. I can imagine that creates uh, great complexity in testing and measuring results. Uh, I'm sure the testing program, you have to probably test different, you know, run that program several different times to start to find out which ver- isolate the variables that work. Um and, and that is a combination of gene therapy. I think you mentioned drug therapies and some other, uh, some other therapies like, you know, um, uh, nutrition, for instance. Can you talk to us about progress in each of those areas? Um, I, I'd be happy to hear about that. 
So, so now is the right time to be launching into a really aggressive combi- combination therapy campaign in in terms of mice, because there are a fair few individual, fair few interventions used late onset when the mice are already in middle age that have individually shown some longevity benefits, which is to say that they repair one one or another kind of damage, but they also have some kind of uh, 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 knock-on effects on other ben- on other types of damage, essentially because of crosstalk between the mechanisms that create damage, and that 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 knock-on effect has to be pretty broad in order to end up with the individual intervention giving any life extension in mice. So we are now in a position to be able to combine a number of those things. As I said, four of those things that we're doing in this first round of this study, um, so as to try to get a lot more. And of course, we have no idea what's going to happen. It's an experiment, but. We're very, very. I'm very, very happy. It's the most exciting experiment I've ever led. Yeah, I, I find uh, you know the whole intermittent fasting and caloric restriction stuff. It's in- incredible how much we've we've learned about that just in the last decade or so, and how much uh, interest has come out of that. It's um, it's a, a really interesting area. Um, just to define for people who are listening, when when we talk about senescence, um, can you just define that for listeners who may not be familiar with that concept? Yeah, good question, because it is used in multiple ways. Senescence is, in one sense, simply the word that biologists like to use for the word aging, because they understand that aging is not all bad for you. Aging involves becoming more knowledgeable and so on. So they talk about like you know the health problems of, of aging as senescence. But it's also used at a cellular level to describe a particular um, switch in behavior that some cells sometimes undergo and which basically turns them into they're often called zombie cells cells that are not dividing in fact they are stopping themselves from dividing but they are secreting nasty things so they're actively toxic to their environment um, and uh, so it's been found that if you get rid of these cells then that's an awfully good thing that was one of the seven strands of damage repair that I started talking about more than 20 years ago um, shortly after it was first proposed by my good friend Judy Campisi and I'm delighted to say that work after 10 years after that, uh, uh, led by her, among other people, um, confirmed that this was true. And now, of course, it's a very big industry. Awesome. Well, let's go to the quick fire round. I'm going to change it a little bit today, Rob, um, based on the (laughs) the content. So um, what was the first uh, time you remember being exposed to the concept of longevity? I don't remember when I was first exposed to the concept of longevity. I mean, it depends what you mean by the concept, really. I mean, I was certainly um, exposed to the concept of aging uh, at an early age. I always kind of knew that aging existed and that, you know, it eventually killed you. And um, it kind of, this is why I never really understood until I was 30 or so that anyone else could possibly think differently about aging. Yeah, fair enough. What um, technology do you think has uh, most changed humanity? So far, I would say that the technology that has most changed humanity is probably the oldest technologies in the world, you know, fire and the wheel and so on. But if we talk about modern advances, then certainly the uh, advent of the germ theory and the understanding that hygiene is a good idea, combined, of course, with the uh, the more um, straightforward aspects of modern medicine, antibiotics, vaccines, you know, these have obviously in- improved the quantity of life and also the quality of life of humanity by an enormous amount. Can you name a, a futurist or an entrepreneur or scientist that has personally influenced you? Lots of people have influenced me. Um, the one person who's probably influenced me the most in the longevity field itself is Danim Harmon, who is famous for having uh, come up with the very first truly mechanistic theory of, of aging, the free radical theory of aging, but who should be famous for other things. He um, you know, was only, you know, if he hadn't thought of the free radical theory of aging, other people would have thought of it the following year. So uh, that's not really what I think is his major advance. He made other. He made another really big like refinement of that theory twenty years later that 
almost everybody forgets about, but which to my mind is his single most important scientific breakthrough. And what's perhaps even more important is that he was a real firebrand when it came to maintaining the focus on doing something about aging, treating aging as a medical problem at a time during the 1970s and 80s when that was very, very politically incorrect in the field. Fair enough. Um, so obviously we talk a lot about forecasts and predictions on, on, you know, uh, on this show, but what do you think is the best prediction that is that you've heard or seen from an entrepreneur or a futurist or in sci-fi that, that's ever been made? Well, the point about predictions of uh, technological advances is that they have to have time frames on them in order to be any use whatsoever. Because, you know, anything that is worth doing and can be done will eventually be done and eventually isn't good enough. So, you know, um, I think really the right answer to your question is to talk about my own predictions. I always give predictions about how soon we will reach um, certain milestones. In We're going to get one of those after the break for sure. Yes, we certainly will. Uh, but the point is, I always make them probabilistic because I know perfectly well that in any pioneering technology, you can't know how long it's going to take. Right on. Well, great. Thanks. Aubrey de Grey has been our guest on The Futurist today. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. So please stay tuned to The Futurists. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce and support The Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. And we're back on The Futurists. I'm your host, Brett King, and uh, is Aubrey de Grey. But Rob, before we get into uh, longevity, escape velocity, and some of the uh, concepts that Aubrey's been working on, what, uh, what have you got for us for our deep dive from the future this week? Here we go, Brett. This is this week's deep dive, and it's not about biology. It's about nuclear fusion. So the headline here is that uh, for 60 years, scientists have been trying to solve one of the toughest physics problems, and that is how to replicate the power that lights the sun. And the goal is to do that right here on the planet Earth, and hopefully thereby generate clean and abundant energy. So a big breakthrough happened in the past week, uh, and this is the quest for nuclear fusion, uh, trying to create a mini sun on the Earth. And the first problem they need to solve is the ability to ignite that. Uh, to start that. And they actually achieved a big milestone this week. So on December 13, researchers at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, uh, for the very first time in a fusion reactor, were able to produce more energy uh, than was used to trigger the reaction. So uh, the, the, resulting, uh, the resulting reaction generated more energy than what was put into it in the first place. And that's a big milestone because previous efforts at best could only break even. Um, now, let me put this back in perspective, because though it sounds kind of futuristic and amazing, the first thing is this is just one step in what is clearly going to be a very long process. So yeah, no one has an expectation. Years, this is right. Yeah, we don't have any expectation that there'll be free, clean energy uh, for everyone uh, anytime soon. This may take 60 years before this is actually turned into an energy source. And there's a part of the story that no one has been talking about. We should talk about. Uh, so in, in terms of uh, how we measure energy, the term is joules. And that's named after one of the scientists that studied energy, units of energy. Um, so specifically what happened is that they uh, used lasers to generate x-rays. The x-rays uh, uh, amounted to 2.05 megajoules of energy. And the resulting uh, reaction generated 3.15 megajoules of energy. So almost uh, 50% more increase. And that's a pretty big milestone. It sounds pretty impressive until you realize that um, a megajoule isn't really that much energy. So first off, your stove in your kitchen uses about five megajoules of energy each day. So what we generated here was enough to maybe boil 10 pots of tea or 12 pots of tea. Um, so a relatively small amount of energy was generated. And the part of the story that hasn't been covered in the press, this, this story was picked up all over the place, but the part of the story wasn't covered in the press is what it took to generate that relatively tiny amount of energy. 
that is in the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, there is an array of lasers, 192 lasers in a building that is three times the size of a football field. It's 10 stories tall. So this is an enormous facility with the world's largest array of lasers. And what it takes to turn those lasers on is 300 megajoules of energy. So literally a hundred <laughs> times more energy is required to turn this whole system on in order to generate enough energy to heat up a couple pots of tea. Um, I don't want to minimize it because it's a major breakthrough. And of course, this is going to get this process will get streamlined in the future. That's the whole point of the research. Um, the goal at the end is clean energy, because what's being fused here is not carbon, it's hydrogen. Hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe. And so instead of burning fossil fuel, uh, which generates some sort of carbon byproduct, which is obviously causing all sorts of environmental problems, uh, this would generate no byproduct. So it's carbon-free and clean. It's also cheap, relatively cheap, if we can solve this generation problem because the resource is abundant uh, because hydrogen is so abundant. So all this is very, very promising, but the costs at the present moment are extraordinarily high. And a lot of people don't realize that Lawrence Livermore is actually a nuclear weapons testing facility. Uh, what they're doing there most of the time is simulating nuclear weapons tests because we no longer do above the ground uh, weapons testing, but we do need to make sure that our nuclear warheads still work. Uh, so I don't think many people were covering the story from that perspective either. So it's an interesting story in the sense that big progress was it's made toward hot. this goal of clean energy, uh, but it comes at a tremendous cost and there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, some of the experts they interviewed said that they, we should not look for uh, nuclear fusion as an energy source anytime before 2060. So that's our deep dive for today. Thank you. Um, now let's return to Aubrey and let's talk a little bit about longevity escape velocity. Why did you pick that term? So that's the name of my new foundation, mm -hmm. Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation. Uh, but it's also a term that I coined a long, long time ago now, nearly 20 years ago. It's an important concept that, in fact, you know, coming back to my uh, emphasis earlier that I try to do things which are not yet mainstream. It's an important concept because really, even though most mainstream people working in the biology of aging now uh, are on board with the concept of damage repair and rejuvenation that I pioneered 20 odd years ago, um, they still run away very fast when they hear about longevity escape velocity. So what is it? So basically, it's all a, um, uh, uh, it's a concept that comes from looking at the uh, trajectory of progress in rejuvenation. If we take a middle-aged person and we have reasonably good rejuvenation technology, technology that doesn't exist yet, but which I believe we have a 50-50 chance of getting to within the next, let's say, 15 years, um, then we may be able to postpone the health problems that they are about to suffer by a couple of decades, let's say by 20 years, so that even though they are 60 years old, when they get to 80, they will be biologically 60. Uh, now... At that point, they will continue to you know, accumulate self-inflicted molecular and cellular damage the way the body does since conception. Um, but uh, that damage will be impervious to these therapies because these therapies will not be perfect. They will be fairly good, but not perfect, at repairing the damage that the body does to itself. So that means that aging will happen. These people will get sick and they will die, you know, 20 or so years after they would have otherwise died in the absence of these therapies. Thing is, though, when they are 80 and, still, and biologically 60 for the second time, the therapies will not be the same therapies anymore because that will have been 20 years that we will have bought as scientists to improve the therapies. So actually, we will be able to, if you like, re-rejuvenate the same people, the same people at the age of 80 and give them another 20 years of extra life. Even though intrinsically the problem is more difficult, we will have you know, been able to um, uh, outstrip that by the improvements that we have made. So that's what longevity escape velocity is. It's the, it, it, I, the, strictly speaking, I defined it as the minimum rate at which scientists are going to have to improve the comprehensiveness of these damage repair therapies following the achievement of the first 20 years in order to stay one step ahead of the problem such that 
anyone who is receiving at any point the state-of-the-art therapies will be able to keep their total level of damage within the range that the body is set up to tolerate and thus will not actually ever get sick as a result of being old. So for the baby boomers that, that are listening, basically, if you can hang in there for 20 more years, you'll there'll be new therapies that'll help you hang in there for another 20 years and then the therapies will improve and then you can possibly hang in there for yet another 20 years. Is that kind of what you're describing? 20, no, isn't, isn't, it, isn't it 2036, it's, it's, Aubrey? Isn't that what you've said is the year? That's what I, I roughly speaking, yes. I, 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 I mean, I put this in two of my books. So I hope it's still <laughs> relevant. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a fine, that, that, that's a good year. Yep, that's right. Again, only a 50 50 chance that we'll get there by then, mm-hmm. at least a 10% chance. It's pretty chance good. That, it's better than what we've got now, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is at least a 10% chance that we won't get there for 100 years. Yeah, that's pioneering technology for you. But 50% is quite enough to be worth fighting for. And to be clear, what you're no, talking about is rejuvenation here. Um, I think, yeah. I think for most people, and I think our medical establishment today, the way we approach a human body is the way we approach an automobile, which is to say when a part wears out, you pull the part out and you replace it with another part. Uh, that's the principle behind you know, uh, heart replacements, uh, liver replacements, and so forth. Uh, but you're describing something rather different, which is that we can actually rejuvenate a human organ. Well, well actually, I'm not describing something oh, all that different. I see. The difference between replacement and repair is really only a difference in the eye of the beholder, depending on how, on the scale at which you look at the question. Right, right. So if, if it's you think about a car, level, example, yeah. Yeah, if you think about a car, for example, when you replace the engine, you're repairing the car. Mm-hmm. But when you, but equally at a small at a smaller scale, when you replace the spark plugs of the engine, you're repairing the engine and so on. So, so there really isn't a conceptual difference between the two. Oh, so if you go small enough down to the level of a cell, it's like replacing yeah, a spark right. plug. It, yeah, it's still the same. That's right. Um, but the thing is here that. Um, when it comes to aging, um, people who've been working on it have not been thinking about it that way, in the medical way. Mm-hmm. They've been thinking about it more at the level of, let's try and make the body run more cleanly. Let's try and slow down the rate at which the body creates this molecular and cellular damage in the first place. And thus, we can postpone the age at which that damage gets to the point uh, where, that's beyond what the body can tolerate. And, um, you know, that has been shown to be very much harder than um, th- than doing this damage repair. No surprise, because you do you wouldn't do it for a car either. When you have a car, you know you, you we have cars that are hundred years old now. They weren't designed to last hundred years. They were designed to last maybe ten years. And the fundamental reason is because every so often uh, people go in and you know scrape off and remove the rust so that the rust does not accumulate to the point where the doors fall off. It's exactly the same thing. Hmm. But I want to come back to longevity escape velocity in another sense, just for a moment, because what I haven't explained is why most of my colleagues still find it so difficult to take on board. The reason is because of the consequences for likely longevity. So I always have to emphasize that we don't work on longevity. I work on health, and longevity is a side effect of health. But the point is, it's a rather big side effect. We tend to die these days, not from being eaten by tigers, but from being sick. And of course, these days in the industrialized world, we tend to get sick as a result of having been born a long time ago. And that's becoming increasingly true in the developing world as well. So if we can actually achieve this maintenance of a biological age that is, you know, in young adulthood, then we will have a risk of death each year. That will also be the same as if you had only been born 20 or 30 years ago. And, um, you know, that means that the average chance of dying, if you reach the age of, let's say, 26 in the world today, the average chance of dying in the next year is like less than one in a thousand. So this leads to very large predictions of how long people will live. And a lot of people are very worried about embracing such predictions because they think it sounds like science fiction, even though they do privately acknowledge the logic of it. Now, um, if if we look at what Robert was talking about earlier in that the... uh um, you know, the we, we have had the um, age slipping in the US. Um, you know, part of that is because the cost of healthcare is significantly more expensive from a GDP perspective these days. If you look back in the mid-80s, in the US, it was like 6 or 7% of GDP. It's 16% of GDP in the US today. Now, admittedly, the US uh, system is uh, inefficient compared with um, the OECD uh, nations, but... Um, 
you know, we, we have a set of technologies now coming like gene therapy and other things that should, um, you know, all based on compute power, frankly, that should radically um, advance the ability for us to improve overall healthcare. But what you're talking about here is, is more than that. It's a fundamental um, change in terms of the way we think about um, maintenance of our health over time. So when does the system switch? When does it switch from being this whack-a-mole problem we have today to being something where it's a systemic approach to um, you know, healthcare on a maintenance basis? So this kind of preventative maintenance approach to healthcare, to postponing the health problems of late life, is one that's already on its way in parts. The easier components of damage repair are things like stem cell therapies to replace cells that the body is not replacing automatically by cell division, or removal of the zombie cells I mentioned earlier that are um, technically known as senescent cells. These things, you know, ways to do those things are already in clinical trials. Um, in the stem cell case, I always highlight the clinical trial going on in Japan right now for Parkinson's disease, which is very much a disease of cell loss in aging. And uh, there are other trials starting up in the US doing the same kind of thing. Um, uh, senescent cells, again, there are companies in the US mostly uh, focused on this, and they're already up through phase two clinical trials. So uh, this is all going well. Other areas, which are the areas that Sense Research Foundation was focused on and is focused on, and the, the ones that we're combining in um, my uh, LEV Foundation, these are mostly focused on the harder uh, areas that have not yet reached the clinic, but again, that are moving in that direction. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think this shift is not going to happen all in one go, but it's definitely happening already. And also, of course, once we do get these combinations working and we do get um, the synergy, the, 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 the more than additive effects of these things, uh, that will change attitudes very rapidly and therefore things will further accelerate. It, and are policy makers making that shift or do you think the science has to come first before the, the policy gets there? Policymakers are usually at the trailing edge of technology because their main focus is on getting re-elected and therefore the, they want to see that the public are on board with things. And so I've always focused historically on doing a great deal of outreach and interfacing with the general public so as to, um, you know, to, Push the to, to reach the elected representatives indirectly. But now we can move beyond that because there is sufficient maturity, not only at the, in, the, in the science, but also in the conversation in the wider world, that politicians and um, others, other policymakers and decision makers can actually have a sensible conversation about this. So actually, LEV Foundation is also putting significant financial resources into supporting that, both in terms of actual interfacing Congress, you know, we're, we're getting getting people to understand, getting elected representatives to understand this and to potentially put more money into this research, and also to the wider world to actually educate the older generation in a manner that perhaps contrasts with the more fatalistic approach that has historically been taken by organizations like the AARP. Let's focus a little bit on the on some of the future issues that may arise. So presuming that you're making progress and you're being successful, um, I can anticipate that there might be some pushback against the notion of longevity, some political pushback. Uh, and for instance, uh, it, it's um, yeah. connected to this Very notion legal. that you know, we have rising income inequality. So at this point in the United States, 1% of the population controls far more wealth than 50% of the population. And that trend is continuing in that direction. It's not being reversed. And there's no, there seems to be no political willpower to reverse it. Uh, because we now have people who may have not billions, but hundreds of billions of dollars at their disposal, we can presume that they make use of every available technology to extend their lifespan. And this presents a science fiction scenario that we've all read about in the past, which is the concept of rich Methuselahs who have all the resources. They're holding all, they're hoarding all the wealth. And of course they can extend their lifespan Elysium. while yeah, other people who have yeah. less resources are going to die off earlier. Is that a scenario that crosses your mind? Do you run into resistance? Do people raise that issue to you? All the time. <laughs> and it's extremely tedious. The fact is, you're quite right that this is all the fault of science fiction. It turns out that, you know, science fiction that makes the uh, audience think 
that ageing is some kind of blessing in disguise, it's popular. And the reason it's popular is people want to continue to trick themselves into believing that ageing is some kind of blessing because in disguise. Because there's no alternative. Because historically there's been no alternative. The, you know, we've known about ageing since the beginning of civilization, and we've known that we can't do anything about it. And so we've had no choice but to put it out of our minds and get on with our miserably short lives and make the best of it, right? And, um, you know, the fact that that's no longer true is a relatively recent development. Um, so, you know, the society is still really stuck in this, what I've called the pro-ageing trance, where they use arbitrarily illogical rationalizations to, um, you know, to, 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 to distract themselves. And science fiction uh, in relation to a post-aging world is really, you know, a very big part of that. So, so, so no, let, so let's deal with the specific question you asked about inequality of access. Yeah. This is so obviously not going to happen oh. because aging is so expensive. Um, aging today is by far the major uh, uh, money sink in terms of medical expenditure across the whole of the industrialized world and honestly also in the developing world now. Um, so the medicines, even when they first come along and they're probably going to be fairly expensive to deliver, they will pay for themselves at the level of the economy so fast, so many times over, that it would be economically suicidal for any country not to make sure that everybody who is old enough to need them can have these therapies as soon as they're available at all. And of course, that will involve a lot of front-loading of investment into infrastructure and training of medical personnel and so on. But that will, as I say, pay for itself so fast that it would be economically suicidal not to do it, quite apart from being electorally suicidal because people, you know, poor people have the same number of votes as rich people, even though they have fewer dollars. Okay, but that raises a second question, which I'm sure you've heard before, and it's another science fiction question, which is that if we can extend lifespan, then the population is going to increase. And we're already approaching the point where we don't think no, that the world can sustain. Populations are shrinking population. all around the world at the moment. So I don't, you know, I don't see that as an issue. <laughs> well, Brett didn't even <laughs> let me get done with the question. <laughs> 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 so some people say, you know, populations are shrinking anyway. So, you know, we're going to uh, even the United Nations says that we're going to like have population peak later this century. Yeah. Um, and of course, the solution to that insofar as that's a problem is to uh, lower the death rate because we're not going to raise the birth rate. People, um, yeah, that, that just seems to be not what people want to do. Um, however, uh, of course, the point here is that we will be keeping people alive in a good state of health. So even though there will be lots of chronologically old people, there will be no biologically old people to speak of. Um, and then we have to ask, you know, what is overpopulation anyway? Yeah. It's not not having enough space. You know, at the moment, everybody in the world could have their own acre, right? Um, even if we just restrict ourselves to the places that are nice to live. Um, and uh, so, so what is the problem? The problem, of course, is pollution. The fact that we're, you know, burning too much fossil fuel and we're, you know, creating too much undegradable plastic and so on. But those problems are in the process of being fixed, of course. You know, Elon Musk has said some not terribly well thought through things about the desirability of doing something about aging, but he's also put $100 million into an X prize for the um, yeah, removal of carbon from the atmosphere, right? Which is the way to go, of course. You don't just want to lower emissions. You want to actually remove the carbon that's already there. Um, and there's not nearly enough effort that goes into that. So that was a very good thing that Elon did. Um, you know, and... Um, the same applies to a lot of different things, you know, bacteria that eat plastics, you know, all of the types of uh, pollution that we make. So we're going to be undoubted, undoubtedly reducing the total amount of pollution that the human population generates, even as we increase the number of humans that are doing the generating. I'm, I'm mindful of your time, Aubrey, but, you know, we've got a couple of questions we want to wrap up with. But Rob, you go first and then I'll, I'll jump in. Previously, you mentioned that that uh, politicians have kind of a slow twitch reflex when it comes to dealing with the, the longevity trends. But there's one place actually in the United States where we noticed that they they've actually picked up on longevity trends. That is um, pushing off the age uh, when you can get retirement benefits and when you can get Medicare benefits. Uh, they have now pushed those ages up to 70 from 65. And that's a direct reflection of the fact that uh, until the last two years that the human lifespan in the United States has been increasing pretty steadily. Uh, and they're trying to accommodate for the fact that people are living longer uh, and so they can extend those benefits for a longer period of time. Um, in your vision, if, if human lifespan can be extended even further, 
Would you envision that people are continuing to have uh, productive working lives uh, where we might have a working, a career? Yeah, how does it change our perception of learning and work and all of those things? You must have thought about this extensively. You're so right. You know, there's not a lot of this that I haven't thought about and been asked about a thousand times. <laughs> um, um, but, yeah, okay, so the, the, the question of work is an example of something that I think people are very, very prone to, which is when they think about the future, especially the distant future, they think about one particular thing that's going to be completely different, and they just kind of do it in the context of assuming that absolutely everything else is more or less the same as it is today, which is, of course, complete nonsense. So in this case, so I just just talked about overpopulation being a problem of pollution, and so other technologies are are going to ensure that that problem doesn't occur. Similarly with work, you know, we have this wave of automation that's coming. You know, even conservative organizations like the UN are saying that more, most of the jobs that exist today will not exist 20 years from now. And that's the kind of time frame when we're going to just begin to see people living a bit longer. Right? So, um, you know, there's just no point in trying to imagine the way the world will be when the whole system of distribution of wealth works in a completely different way than a way that assumes full employment. Okay, I've hit you with some obvious yeah. questions that you've got. You've been asked many times before. You had good answers for them. Let me let me frame it a different way here. Uh, you've mentioned that you're controversial and that some of your positions that you've staked out are very provocative. What do the critics of Aubrey de Grey say about you and your work? <laughs> so... Um, The scientific critics are few and far between these days. Uh, Fifteen odd years ago, I had to fight quite a battle uh, with with some rather opinionated colleagues um, uh, to get people to take seriously the idea that damage repair was even a scientific concept. But that virtually never happens anymore. There was one time earlier this year when it was a bit of a blast from the past. Somebody came along and actually did choose to, you know, rehash those things. But it was um, only one person and he didn't do very well. Um, uh, But uh, in terms of wider audience criticism, it's a different thing. You know, people just want to find ways to discredit me. Like they'll they'll say, oh, this guy obviously, um, you know, he doesn't know how to do his own experiments, so you don't have to believe him. Or they'll say things like he's talking about these crazy lifespans, so he's obviously crazy and we don't need to pay attention to him. Things like that. So, you know. I'm past all that, really. You know, there are quite enough people who do see the logic of everything I say and the rationale for it and who recognize that I'm not just grandstanding when I talk about long lifespan. Mm-hmm. L- let me let me ask you this to sort of wrap up because we are a bit over time. Um, but I want to get a bit out there, you know. Um, when we can live to a 1,000 years old, because you've predicted the first person to live to a 1,000 is alive today. Um, probably, probably. Um, how is that going to change the philosophy of what it means to be a human? I don't think that one's expectation of how long one is going to live is going to change the philosophy of what it likes, what it means to be a human at all. I think that at the moment we look ahead to our lives with a certain degree of understanding of how long we've got before we start going downhill and before we die. And when we don't have that anymore, that's not going to change the fact that most of our decisions are made in terms of the relatively short term, the next decade or two. You know, I haven't the faintest idea what I'm going to enjoy doing or choose to do even 50 years from now. And I am fine not knowing that. I think that it makes sense to be a first things first kind of person. I want to go to Mars. I mean, but I need longevity to do that, frankly, because otherwise I don't think economically it's going to be viable for me. Or indeed, in terms of the um, you know, radiation risk, you know, the, the, the radiation, of course, speeds up aging. So in order to survive these long journeys, we're going to have to figure out ways to repair the damage that is caused both aging and so, by radiation. That's true. I, you know, um, it, the first book that sort of really inspired me in terms of how longevity was necessary for this type of exploration was uh, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars Trilogy, actually. But we should uh, we should discuss that with him when we eventually get him on the show. I've been talking about getting him on the show for a while, but Aubrey, to Gray. It's been absolutely fascinating. Um, I wish we could go on for longer, but in respect of your time, um, I want to thank you for uh, joining us today. Um, before we sign off, um, how can people contribute to the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation? We have a website, of course, levf.org. 
and uh, there's a nice uh, friendly donate page there. Um, and of course, you can read all about what we're doing. The uh, foundation is very new, and so the website is somewhat under construction with only rather abbreviated descriptions of our projects, but that will change rapidly over time. And um, yeah, uh, every every dollar helps absolutely. They, you know, this is uh, uh, mouse experiments are expensive, and uh, now is the time. You got to all get those maths, m- mouses to feed. <laughs> That's um, right, mouth mouth. <laughs> yes. Um, and what? what's the best place to follow you, you know, on social or whatever? Yeah, so, yeah, obviously I'm on Twitter and Facebook and so on. I, 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 I'm I on Twitter quite a lot. But really um, the main thing to do is to start with our, from our website because that's where the most of the news is going to happen. And, of course, there are links to my social media from there. Fantastic. Aubrey de Grey, it's been an absolute pleasure and um, – um, you know, I, I, it was just mind blowing as usual. And thank you. It. Yeah, absolutely great. great um, so don't forget to check it out. Levf.org, L-E-V-F.org is the uh, website. Uh, you've been listening to The Futurists. I'm Brett King and, of course, Rob Tursek. If you like the show, um, you know, make sure you leave us a, a comment, a rating, um, you know, from where it is you, you download the show, tell others about it, you know, tweet out about it, whatever you can do to help get the traction on the show. You guys have been supporting us fantastically. We're already at over 50,000 downloads a month now, which is incredible to see that progress Um and, you know, we're very grateful for the support from the broader community. Um, you know, um, let's keep it going. Um, but until then, we'll obviously be back next week when we'll see you in the future. In the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at Futurist Podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.